All right. Uh, there were notes in the back. You can grab those if you missed them. They're posted online if you'd rather find them online as well. Uh, Revelation 19. Uh, in 1741, a man named George Frederick Handel wrote an oratorio, not an opera. It doesn't have uh, a storyline or any sort of drama to it, but an oratorio called The Messiah. Um, there are three parts to this musical work. And I told you last time, if you wanted homework, you could listen to The Messiah for inspiration for tonight. So I think I've made it through like three times. These are the three sections. These are the titles of the three sections. And all I have to say about these is in the old days, they really knew how to give titles. Because these are amazing. And if you go back and look at old Puritan books and uh, books written by the Reformers, the titles are amazing. So part one, the prophecy and realization of God's plan to redeem mankind by the coming of the Messiah. So the Old Testament, part one. Part two, the accomplishment of redemption by the sacrifice of Christ, man's rejection of God's offer, and mankind's utter defeat when trying to oppose the power of the Almighty. That's part two. And part three is a hymn of thanksgiving for the final overthrow of death. At the end of this section, there's something called the Hallelujah Chorus that has been put on cartoons and movies and commercials over and over and over again. And you can hear the grand choir singing Hallelujah, Hallelujah, all that business. That part of the Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, comes from Revelation 19. It's pulled straight out of what we're going to talk about tonight uh, in Revelation chapter 19. So, let's think about how we got to this chapter quickly, and then we'll dive in and try to sort through this. Uh, the book of Revelation, you know by now if you've been with us, is built on seven sevens. So... Seven is an important number, it's a full number, it's a complete number, and in Revelation there are seven sevens. So the way this breaks down is like this, there's a prologue, and there's an epilogue, and then in the middle you have these sevens. And uh, this, the one who sits on the throne in the Lamb, is the only one that's not really a seven, and it's really, no it's not first, we would think you would put the foundational vision first. It's not first, but it's the foundational vision for the whole book. It shapes how you think about God and how you think about Jesus, and it controls everything else. The seven letters at the very beginning ground the book in space-time history, real people, real churches, real pastors, real problems, all of that stuff. You've got to think about the book in all its imagery and its symbolism in, time, in terms of what was happening uh, in these churches in the first century. These three sevens that are blue, those three sevens look at the broad scope of church history, what we keep calling the inner advental period, from Jesus' advent, his coming, his birth, unto his second advent, what can you expect life on earth to be like in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus? And they just cycle back, right? So the seals tell you this is what it's going to be like. And then John cycles back and he says, no, trumpets, it's going to be like this. And then he gives you another 
description of it. Seven visions of conflict. All of those three sevens cover this broad scope of human history. We keep comparing it to different camera angles. There's 15 camera angles last night of Aaron Rodgers' ankle, right? Breaks his ankle, ruptures his Achilles, whatever he does. We need it from this angle. No, we need it from this angle. No, we need it from this angle. Maybe someone could give us an x-ray. Maybe somebody, whatever. Uh, but it's the same thing being showed over and over again, and that's what's happening here. These last three sevens, the bowls, the visions of victory, and the visions of the end, these focus more on the end. Uh, they're more directed and more uh, emphasizing the very end of human history from different perspectives. Last month, we started in on these visions of victory, and we're still right there tonight. Last month, we looked at Revelation 17 and 18, and the destruction of Babylon and the woman and this prostitute and the dragon and all that sort of stuff, all that business. And we're going to finish that section off uh, tonight. So seven visions of victory. They are arranged, we said this last week, as a chiasm with the wedding of the lamb in the middle. This is important. They are not necessarily presented in chronological order. These sevens, uh, seven visions of victory, you cannot read them as this happens and then this and then this and then this. That's how it's going to play out. As you read them, the, the, the sequencing of them is how John saw them. But the arrangement of them in a literary perspective is a chiasm that looks like this. Uh, at the middle, the heart of it, is the wedding of the Lamb. That's the main part of the vision of victory uh, in this section. And the great prostitute Babylon you meet in chapter 17 corresponds with the beast and the false prophet who are thrown into the lake of fire. And the fall of Babylon corresponds with this announcement of battle that we're going to talk about tonight. And the worship in heaven is directed to Christ who shows up on a white horse. These different parts correspond to each other at each level of the chiasm and the heart of it is this uh, marriage between the Lamb and His people. It's not strictly chronological. So I gave you a few quotes here uh, just as we think about jumping into Revelation 19. These are all from Eugene Peterson. He says, The salvation songs and images that St. John sets before us are placed against a background of catastrophe. So if you're thinking about the book of Revelation canonically in the big scope of the Bible, you understand that the catastrophe of the Bible began where? All the way back in Genesis with the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve rebelling against God. That's the origin of the catastrophe. And what you see in Revelation 19 is the resolution to that. Uh, the final wrapping up of that. And for some people, one group of people, the catastrophe is going to be reversed and their experience is going to be salvation. For another group of people, they're going to get the just end result response from God that they deserve, and it's judgment, and it's wrath. And quite frankly, it's terrifying. But it's the just response of God to this catastrophe that, that uh, started back in Genesis 3. Peterson says this, If there's no accurate perception of the catastrophe, there can be no adequate perception of salvation. Salvation is God's action that deals with catastrophe. This is just basic Bible truth, basic salvation truth. 
If you don't understand sin, you can't understand salvation. If you don't understand the truth about who God is and his law and how you've fallen short of that, the good news of Jesus has absolutely no meaning at all. And in the grand scope of things, as you think about Jesus executing God's wrath in Revelation 19, it makes no sense unless you understand the catastrophe that's behind it in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. One last quote. The world's alternative to salvation is optimism. Optimism is a way of staying useful and being hopeful without having recourse to God. Optimism comes in two forms, moral and technological. I'll be honest with you, this doesn't have a whole lot to do with Revelation 19. He just said it in a chapter about Revelation 19, and I think it's really insightful. If you don't believe the biblical view of God, and you don't believe the biblical truth about human sin, the only positive way forward for you is just to be optimistic. And one way to be optimistic is to be a moral optimist and to say human beings are basically good, and we can be good, and we should be good, and we can be nice, and we can just all get along, and wouldn't it all be nice, kumbaya, everybody hold hands, it's all going to be okay. And it's incredibly naive in the grand scope of human history to think that that's a legitimate possibility, a legitimate path forward. The other way is to be a technological optimist and to say, we can fix it. We can come up with a pill. We can come up with a plan. We can come up with a program. We can come up with some way to reverse engineer whatever issue we're struggling with, um, a bigger government program, more money, more this, more that, more whatever, can fix this problem. And it's just empty optimism in the end. The biblical hope is not just blind optimism, but it's salvation. And that's what you see here in this, uh, this group of sevens. So, Revelation 19. Let's read verse 1 to 10. We only have one chapter tonight, so we don't have to read the whole thing. We'll read 1 to 10. We'll talk about it. And then we'll read 11 through the end. We'll talk about it. And then we'll end with some conclusion. So, Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We just saw that in chapter 17 and 18. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. From the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude uh, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed 
are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we'll work through these ten verses, and then we'll do the second half of the chapter. Uh, Right out of the gate, verse 1, John introduces us to a group that we've met before, and it's the great multitude in heaven. Uh, And the reason we know them is we met them back in Revelation chapter 7. And I just want to briefly mention one important piece of Revelation 7, because I've talked with a few guys about this in the last couple weeks. In Revelation 7, John heard a number. And the number he heard was 144,000, 12,000 from 12 tribes. You remember, it's not the real 12 tribes. It's a list that doesn't correspond to any other list of the 12 tribes in all of the Old Testament. So right out of the gate, those listing of 12 is saying to you, this is not a literal 12 tribes. Okay? The point is, this is a full, complete number. It's exact. It's precise. God knows exactly who is part of this company. So he hears a number. Then he turns, and what he sees is a, quote, great multitude. And it's a great multitude drawn from every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. And this is the important part of Revelation 7. That's the same group. It's the same group. John's not saying there's a Jewish group and there's a Gentile group, he's saying there's one group. And he describes it one way with one camera angle, and then he resets and he describes it a second way with another camera angle. And the the two descriptions are complementary. And so I think I gave you a quote from Beale. Uh, Beale says this, there's only one group in this multitude. It's portrayed from different perspectives. The first pictures the church as the restored remnant of true Israel whose salvific security has been guaranteed. They're numbered exactly because God has determined exactly who will receive his redemptive seal and only he knows the precise number of his true servants. The second picture, back in chapter 7, understands the same host from the viewpoint of their actual vast number. Although they're a saved remnant, they also... Uh, They are also those who have been gathered from all over the earth and have lived throughout the entire period of the church age. Therefore, they are a multitudinous throng. So that's the same group. And John mentions them here in chapter 19 to say, there's a great multitude. And bells are going off in your head to say, oh, I've heard about them. Back in chapter 7, that's all the redeemed people of God. It's like... 144,000, this 12, 12's perfect number, full number of God's people. They're all numbered. They're all there. And it's also like this massive group of people from every tribe, nation, language. And it's the same group that John's describing, and they show up here. So let's talk about that group. John presents a great multitude as they respond to the call to rejoice. And you see this call to rejoice back in chapter 18, verse 20. If your Bible's open, you can look at that. Uh, It says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. God has given judgment for you against her. This is an odd idea for a lot of Christians. It's easy for Christians to think about God saves people 
in His grace and His mercy, and we should rejoice in that, right? That's the, like the most obvious thing I could say. God is merciful, He's patient, He's kind, He saves sinners, and we should rejoice. That's true. But what Revelation 18 and 19 is picking up on is that God's people also rejoice when He executes judgment on His enemies. And the world doesn't have a great category for that because the world doesn't have a biblical understanding of God and they don't have a biblical understanding of sin. So the idea that anyone would rejoice at God's judgment is completely foreign, but that's what John's describing here. John records from this great multitude four hallelujahs. I learned this when I was studying for chapter 19. I had to go fact check this. This is the only four places in the New Testament that this word shows up. Lots of occurrences in the Old Testament. There's the only four in the book of Revelation and the only four in the New Testament. And the word literally means Hallel is a praise or worship. And Jah or Yah is the word part, the word root for God's name Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to pronounce it and spell it uh, based off the Hebrew letters and the implied vowels. So literally, a hallelujah is a praise to Yahweh. A praise to Jehovah. Worship to Yahweh, worship to Jehovah. And there's four of them. And it's worth noting what the, the four are about here. Revelation 19, 1-2 is a hallelujah for the righteousness of God. In his judgments, he's righteous. And so John says things like, uh, he avenged the blood of the saints. And we talked about that a month ago. That he is giving... He is giving Babylon and this great prostitute, he's giving them exactly what they deserve. It's just, just and it's measured. And he uses these words in 1 and 2. He says uh, that his judgments are true and just. They're exactly what they ought to be. They're not off. They're not short. They're not long. But they're exactly what they ought to be. So God is righteous. Verse 3 is a hallelujah for the finality of God's judgment. And this is an idea we're going to come back to next month when we look at Revelation 20. But I just want you to note in verse 3, he says that the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This destruction of Babylon is an eternal destruction. This, there's nothing else after it. Like, that's it this destruction and this judgment that's poured out by God. And we'll circle back to that and really talk about it next week in chapter 20. Verse 4 and 5 is a hallelujah directed to the one true God. And the elders show up and the creatures, we saw them back in chapter 4 in the foundational vision. And they're worshiping God because He's the true God. He's the one God. Uh, he's worthy of their worship. Verse 6, 7, and 8 is a hallelujah for the marriage of the Lamb. The Lamb, by now, you know to be Jesus. And the bride, in case there's any confusion, Mounts is very helpful here. The bride in this joyous wedding is the church. So there is a wedding taking place, a union between Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, and His bride, the people of God, this great multitude, this, quote, 144,000 sealed, uh, the perfect number of God's people. They're the, the bride. They're the church. Um, the Lamb's bride 
just looking back to last week, this is the first time you read about the bride in chapter 19, and she's a clear contrast. I was going to say parallel, but parallel is not the right word. Contrast is the right word. She's a contrast to the prostitute that you meet in Revelation 18. And this woman who's loud and she looks beautiful, but she's seducing all of the nations with her sexual immorality and she's disgusting when you get close to her. The bride is a contrast to that in chapter 19. Uh, This is really interesting. And I think it's not just interesting, but important. The bride in this passage literally is the wife of the lamb. That's the actual word. The Greek word is gune where you can see gynecologist being the root there, a doctor for women, right? The real word is this is the woman of the lamb, or in context, the wife of the lamb. And I just point out why this is important, that she's not called the bride, but she's actually called the wife, okay? In American culture, you are a bride first, and then you're a wife. You understand the order of that? First, you have a wedding ceremony, you're a bride, and then when the wedding ceremony's done, you're a wife. And sometimes men joke around and they say, well, this is my bride, but really, bride is a word that we use for a wedding. She's the bride. After the wedding, she's the wife. In Hebrew culture, first you're a wife, and then you're a bride later. And you see this reflected in the story of Mary and Joseph, don't you? where Mary and Joseph have not come together. She's not been the bride. But Joseph, when his wife pops up pregnant, says, I'm going to have to divorce this woman because it's his wife. They haven't consummated it. She's not the bride, but there was a legal agreement that took place so that she was his wife even before she was the bride. So when I say to you the bride is the church, Literally, the bride is the wife. Right now, the church is married to Jesus. And the ceremony is coming later. Right? The celebration of it is coming later when Christ returns and destroys all this evil. But right now, the church, for all her warts and all her problems and all her issues, she is the bride of Christ. You don't see that when you drive up and down the streets of Odessa and you see all these churches and you think about all the dysfunction and the problems and the messes. You didn't see it when you drove up and down the mail route in Asia Minor past Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea and you saw all these little pathetic, pitiful churches. You just saw something that was not all impressive. But Revelation is an unveiling and it's pulling back the curtain to say to you, this is the wife, and now the wedding ceremony comes when Christ returns and this consummation is going to take place in Revelation chapter 19. So Guthrie, this is the book the ladies use. The wedding day itself isn't actually in our passage. We have to skip ahead to catch a glimpse of it, and we find it in Revelation 21. So this is going to be the very last week that we meet, and that's another good reminder that this is not John laying out a chronology because he says right here, the marriage has come. It's wedding time. But then he's not going to describe that till later, and he's going to describe all these other things. He's not laying it out for you in strict chronological order. 
He's laying it out to you thematically, and he's going to circle back to that in chapter 21. Uh, Lad says the same thing. John heralds the marriage supper of the Lamb, but he does not actually describe the event. Note this. The bride is dressed in white, and it represents the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteous deeds of the saints. There's a promise back in Revelation 3 to the church in Sardis that if they overcome, if they're faithful to Jesus, that they will be clothed in garments of white. And there's an explanation of that in Revelation 7.14. It's an odd image, but it says that the people of God have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. When you read about this bride, and she's dressed in white, and it's the righteous deeds of the saints, do not have in your head, the church has to be really, really good to make it to the wedding ceremony. The church has got to really mind her P's and Q's and keep all the Ten Commandments really, really well so that she can have these white garments. We don't have white garments. We're like the high priest in the book of Zechariah. And we're standing there in the presence of the Lord and our garments are filthy and they're dirty and we're not worthy to be there. And God in His mercy is clothing us. And he's giving us these white garments. And you actually see this in Revelation 19, verse 8. Look what it says. We've seen this phrase a lot in Revelation. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted her to clothe herself. That's that Greek phrase, edothe autoi. It's the divine passive where human beings are doing something, but God is the one behind it. How is it that the bride ends up with white garments and these righteous deeds? That comes from God. God is the one behind that. And that's as simple as Ephesians 2. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, you are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus, not by works lest anyone should boast. But you're actually saved by grace through faith in Jesus for good works, and God has prepared those good works beforehand that you should walk in them. God is the author of all that. He's the author of the grace. He's the author of the faith. He's the author of what Christ has done. He's the author of the good works that we walk in, and that's the same idea reflected here in Revelation 19. Uh, The saints, Poitras says, are distinguished from the world by their righteous acts. At the same time, these acts are not the product of autonomous effort, but planned and empowered by God. And he quotes Ephesians 2 and Philippians 2, both of those helpful. Uh, A few more thoughts here on the bride. Uh, The bride is the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. If you want to trace this down, you can look at Isaiah 61. You may remember a story in the Gospels where Jesus went to his hometown, Nazareth, and he got to preach in the synagogue. Guess what passage he read? Isaiah 61. He read part of Isaiah 61. Not all of it, but he read part of it. And if you read the rest of that passage, it talks 
uh, about this image of a bride and the groom, all of that prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, the bride is connected to the fourth of seven blessings in Revelation. So I've told you this several times now. There are seven blessings in Revelation. That shouldn't surprise you. This is the fourth one. Uh, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, gave you some verses here you can trace through Isaiah. Uh, talks about a great feast, um, a great marriage feast at the end of all things. Jesus, when he celebrated the Passover with the disciples, he told them that he was not going to eat that meal again until when? Until he ate it with them in the kingdom. And he's talking about this great marriage supper that's to come. There's going to be a great banquet, a great marriage supper uh, Paul says to the church in Corinth, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is 1 Corinthians 11, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You just keep doing it over and over again until Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, we have the real thing. We eat with him and we celebrate with him. You see this in Revelation 14, 11, uh, which we've already covered. Uh, John is completely overwhelmed at the vision of the marriage of the Lamb, and he falls down and he worships this angel. And I know that seems odd to us. When you read it, you just think, how dense can you be? There's a lamb and there's a wedding and all of this business, and you're falling down to worship the angel. And he does it again at the end of the book, by the way. Um, John has seen a lot in these visions a lot and it's just overwhelming to him and uh, he does something stupid and Jesus gently corrects him or the angel gently corrects him uh, and says you don't worship me but you should worship God alone uh, very quickly because this end of verse 10 is really strange the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy you'd be amazed how much is written in commentaries about that verse what does that verse mean and how do you sort it out? And I'll just put it up on the screen. Um, for Gar, Hagar, Marturia, the witness, the testimony of Jesus, Iesu, is the spirit. This word is the question. Uh, because in the original Greek, it's not capitalized. And pneuma is the word spirit. And you have to determine every time that word shows up in the New Testament if that means Holy Spirit. Or if that means you have a spirit, your spirit. It's the same word. You don't get a capital letter to help you sort that out in the original manuscripts. And so I'm talking about pages and pages and pages and pages of debate about what this is actually talking about. And the options are, if it's a lowercase s, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's like saying the witness of Jesus, the story of Jesus is the essence of prophecy. All prophecy is about him. That's the, the gist of it, the spirit of it. If it's a big S and it's the Holy Spirit, then it's a reference to the Holy Spirit's job in testifying and witnessing to Jesus. And you can make really good cases for both of these from the book of Revelation, and you can sort that out. It's a weird verse, and here's the reason I bring it up to you it's a weird verse. People debate it. It's not central to this passage. 
It is important, and it means one of those, and you got to figure it out. But you should probably not pull an obscure verse out of the book of Revelation and build some wild, charismatic thing about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and prophecy in the church today and on and on and on and all this wild stuff from one pretty obscure, debated verse out of the book of Revelation that's not even the main point of that entire passage. So it's just a good reminder to say, I think it's Begg that says this, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And when you bump up against something in the Bible that's not completely plain, then it's not main. And you shouldn't make it a bedrock piece of, oh, there's prophecy in the church today and I'm a prophet and on and on. And people do that kind of thing with verses like this and that's not at all the point. So uh, when people do that, that's not deep Bible study. That's not like pulling some weird thing that no one has ever seen before and you come up with this cockamamie idea and theory. That's just silliness. And it's not the main point of this passage and you shouldn't build a whole lot of stuff on it.